0: I'm Julia Chatterley, wishing you a warm welcome to First Move this Wednesday, or as we're renaming it, Monetary Marathon Day. A whole cornucopia of central bank action taking place today. The main event, of course, a rate hike decision from the Federal Reserve and Chair Powell's news conference later on. No preview required, really, because the Fed strategically told a few select reporters earlier this week exactly what they were thinking, and now a rate rise of three quarters of a percent is all priced in and fully expected. So the big question is what happens in July and September and what do they say about those months? So the Fed's forecasts are going to be key to watch today, though not to be outdone. We have an ECB OMG moment with the European Central Bank announcing an emergency meeting that it will, quote, apply flexibility and is working on an instrument to address rising bond yields in some member countries. I have no idea what that means, but we'll discuss it very soon. Brought on of of course, by its decision to begin raising interest rates. Some serious yield yikes in play. Italian bond yields surging to over 4% this week. Rising yields equals higher borrowing costs. And that's a huge concern when your debt to GDP ratio is around 150%, just to mention Italy, not other countries as well. Plenty of challenges there. The ECB's predicament is clear. They want to raise rates to tackle inflation, but not at the cost of bond market instability, especially if that instability heightens the risk of recession. All the more reason, of course, too, to watch the behavior of consumers wherever you are in the world. Well, just released numbers show U.S. retail sales falling three-tenths of a percent in May. We were expecting a slight increase. The consumer clearly stressed by rising prices and we're starting to see it now, as you can see in the data. For now, U.S. futures are pointing to a higher open with tech in the lead. You can see the Nasdaq there. Europe also solidly higher too. But of course, the day is young. The main event, the Fed's upcoming information overload, still a few hours away. And Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, as we mentioned, no point issuing a preview today because superior to anything that any analyst can provide or reporter is the fact that uh, asymmetric information, the Fed already provided what they intend to do. So the real surprise would be if we didn't get three quarters of a percentage point rate increase today. The key is their forecasts. What is it going to take to bring inflation down? And that's the key.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And look, I think with no signs of inflation easing, the Fed clearly had to throw out its playbook, which is why we sort of got that messaging, as you alluded to uh, earlier this week in reporting that the Fed was considering, actively considering 75 basis points. Take a look at CPI just to sort of uh, start from there, right? Just to start to get a sense of where we are. If you look at CPI uh, from January 2020, you can see why Powell himself has called inflation unacceptably high. So what happens now? Well, we know that 75 basis points is on the table, three quarters of a percent. But Julia, there's a lag in terms of monetary policy. So that's not likely to be uh, seen or felt in the economy in terms of slowing demand and sort of hopefully cooling inflation for months to come, six to nine months. Uh, But what we might also see is signaling messaging that the Fed has inflation under control. There has been a real concern among some in the investment community that the Fed is behind the curve, that it's too slow, that it really is letting inflation just run rampant. Take a look at this tweet uh, put out yesterday by Bill Ackman, a hedge fund manager uh, here in the U.S. and a very prominent investor, uh, saying, look, the Federal Reserve has allowed inflation to get out of control. Equity and credit markets have therefore lost confidence in the Fed. Market confidence can be restored if the Fed takes aggressive action with 75 basis points tomorrow and in July. So the Fed funds rate standing right now at about 75 to 100 basis points, about 1%. Julia, the expectation is that it heads toward. over the next 12 months into 2023. So what that means is that uh, even if we do see three quarters of our percent today, there are likely many more rates to come, many more rate hikes to come in the future. But signaling and messaging is going to be very important today.
0: Yes, so important. And we're committed to this. And actually, that was a great tweet by Bill Ackman, too, because it was about the commitment to keep going, irrespective of the consequences and the volatility in the markets. I think one of the things that he's going to be asked today is whether they would consider doing a full percentage point rate hike. And his answer to that is going to be so important, too, to your point about credibility and perhaps having a situation now that's out of control and trying to get it back under control. Rahel, we shall see. You're going to have an exciting day. Great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Now, not to be outdone, the European Central Bank says it will, quote, apply flexibility to ease the turmoil we're seeing in the bond markets. The ECB held a surprise meeting Wednesday to discuss the sharp sell-off, which has brought back unpleasant memories of the region's debt crisis. Claire Sebastian joins me now. And therein lies the key, Claire, because they have this situation where they, like many other central banks, want to get inflation under control, but they also don't want to create a such a degree of instability in the bond markets that perhaps they push some nations, like in Italy, for example, into recession at the same time.
2: Challenging. Yes, and in particular challenging, Julie, when you have 19 different countries with 19 different debt levels. This is the big worry that we're seeing. This was the same. You remember it well, 2011, 2012. The worry was what they call fragmentation, when you have very divergent borrowing costs uh, among different members. This is the backdrop to what happened today. We had the ECB meeting last week where they, for the first time in 11 years, said that in July they were going to raise rates and there would be more rate rises to come after that. They're also going to end their bond buying program. Uh, So at that point, bond yields across Europe, Germany, Italy even uh, start to go up uh, because many in the... Markets believe that they hadn't given enough detail, they hadn't given a time scale, any threshold uh, for what they were going to do to try to tackle this issue uh, of fragmentation. So we continue to see the bond yields go up, the difference between German and Italian yields uh, in particular. Uh, and then they call this ad hoc meeting today, they say, to discuss current market conditions. As for what they've done, well, it's really sort of something old uh, and something new. The something new is that they say they will accelerate plans to design what they call a new anti fragmentation instrument that will then need to be approved by the ECB governing council. Could this be something reminiscent of what we saw in 2012? It was called the OMT, where the ECB would be able to buy bonds from more distressed uh, countries as long as they signed up to to, to certain reforms. That was actually never enacted. A Talk about it was enough to calm things down. Uh, And then there was something old that they said as well, they're going to continue to show what they call flexibility when reinvesting funds from bonds that have matured under their pandemic-era bond-buying scheme. So, so that is something they'd already flagged. That means that they could use that money, to, again, to tackle more distressed areas uh, of the eurozone. Is it enough? I think the jury's still out. Markets uh, are sort of behaving a little bit strangely around this. Italian bond yields came down again, then, then came up again. Uh, the eurozone, the euro seems to be giving up some of the gains that it made earlier in the day, though, Julia.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because the idea here is just that you go to a country like Italy, you buy their bonds, you support the price, you bring the yield down and perhaps equal and opposite, you sell German bonds, for example, and you bring those yields down and you stop that difference being created between, um, between the bond yields. That sounds like easing to me, Claire, in an environment where they're trying to tighten and to bring down inflation.
2: Yeah, you know, Judy, I was thinking about this. That this, is, this is really the crux of this, I think, how difficult it is after 11 years of either rock bottom or negative uh, interest rates to bring them back up again. The euro has only been around for 20 years and most of that time has been spent with uh, these rock bottom or negative interest rates. So, so this is this is really tricky and of course the backdrop in Europe is a little different uh, to the United States. Inflation is like in the United States very high but they are more vulnerable to, to shocks, to these energy shocks. Coming from the war in Ukraine, you know, we've seen the gas cutoff to Poland and Bulgaria. Just this week, uh, we saw that Gazprom has reduced the supply of gas uh, through the, the Nord Stream pipeline. So these shocks uh, are, are, are sort of coming uh, you know, in, in quite a degree of frequency to Europe. Inflation is perhaps more unpredictable uh, in this area. And that's why I think another reason why the ECB has to be quite wary and has to tread very carefully here.
0: And it's like that for the U.S. Federal
2: Reserve as well. For the first time in decades
0: in that case, they're having to say, look, we can't be the ultimate backstop, really. We simply can't because we have to get inflation under control. And, um, yeah, markets don't like it. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Now, difficulties and challenges. That's what the Chinese government says it's facing as its economy recovers from lockdowns and supply disruptions. Retail sales down 6.7 percent in May from a year ago, while the youth unemployment rate is at a new record high of 18.4 percent. Selena Wang joins us now on this. Selena, let's talk about that retail sales because we were talking about the risk. Yesterday, that consumption spending among consumers remains depressed simply because there's a concern to go out there. And for three months in a row now, the retail sales suggests that's the case.
3: Exactly, Julia. I mean, three consecutive months of suppressed retail sales. And it's no surprise because COVID lockdowns means people are sealed in their, their homes, less opportunities to stem, spend money, and also less income in their pockets as there have been many job cuts. And so what we're seeing from this May data is that China, the worst of its economic fallout from this recent COVID lockdowns may be over, but this recovery is going to be slow and bumpy. The only real bright spots that we saw from this economic data was a slight increase in fixed asset investment, as well as in that industrial production. But going back to those retail numbers, we pretty much saw consumer spending down in every single category, especially cratering catering sales. This is the restaurant sector down more than 20 percent. Car sales also down 16 percent. So the reality is is that even if businesses are able to restart, well, consumers are still staying cautious, and the economy is still hostage to these COVID lockdowns that can reappear at any moment. Even when there is just one COVID-19 case, analysts, they are still predicting that China's economy could actually contract in the second quarter. Some economists are calling this the biggest economic challenge for China in the past 30 years, Julia.
0: I mean, I can add another one in there. It's difficult always to judge and you have to look at the data with um, some degree of caution. But when the government's admitting an 18.4% unemployment rate among 16 to 24 year olds, I um, I'm incredibly alarmed. We've seen this in other countries, to go back to Europe and the Eurozone debt crisis. Um, What are they doing with these young people? How do they provide work? Yeah, Julia, that
3: is a record high youth unemployment rate, more than 18%. As you say, this is the worst ever. And part of that reason for the big hit is that the services sector getting hit very hard by these COVID lockdowns, that is a big driver of youth unemployment. On top of that, you've got the regulatory crackdown on the tech sector that has long been a source of well-paying jobs for young people. And of course, small businesses, which are a major driver of China's economy, also getting hit hard by these COVID lockdowns. So it is a very bleak job market for these ten, more than 10 million young graduates that are set to graduate in the coming months and that frustration we are seeing from these young people it is spilling onto chinese social media we've even seen some rare protests at prestigious chinese universities over these covid-19 protocols and unfortunately julia a lot of the focus of stimulus from beijing it is not focused on increasing income for people on helping people who've lost their jobs it's more focused on stimulating businesses increasing loans to these businesses businesses. So a lot of these young people, it's not hard to see why they are stressed. They've dealt with years of on and off lockdowns during their prime college years, and now they're seeing their jobs disappear. Julia?
0: Yeah, I mean, you hope that that investment in businesses trickles down and they re-employ people or employ more people. But um, yeah, challenging. And it's to your point, very challenging for these young people too. Selena, great to have you with us. Thank you. Selena Waring right there. OK, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. As defense leaders from Ukraine and nearly 50 other nations meet in Brussels today, a top advisor to Ukraine's president warns Kyiv is severely outgunned by Russia. He's pleading for more weapons. The head of NATO says more help is on the way.
4: We are extremely focused on stepping up, providing more support, more advanced weapons, uh, and also to do that in the best possible way. Uh, for the Ukrainians, because we support them in their just fight against the brutal uh, Russian uh, invasion.
0: But former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev gave an ominous warning. On Telegram, he posted, quote, Who said that in two years Ukraine will even exist on the world map? Now in the United States, nearly 100 million people are now under official warnings of excessively hot weather. Temperatures are near records across the Midwest and Southeast, with heat indices surpassing 38 degrees Celsius. Many people are having to do without cooling after storms damaged electric power grids earlier this week. In other parts of the world, India and Pakistan are dealing with more record-breaking heat after reporting their hottest march on record too. Pakistan's climate ministry says the country jumped from winter to summer this year without experiencing any spring. Meanwhile, Spain is grappling with its earliest extreme heat wave in 41 years. France and the UK also both on high heat alert. OK, straight ahead on First Move, when markets hang off the cliff, on the edge of a cliff is the only way down. Rishir Sharma weighs in. Plus, glossing over inflation, the CEO of L'Oreal tells us why we're still wanting to look good, even with a smaller wallet. That's up next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And what a week already. Crypto prices tumbled due to a Celsius marketplace freeze. The Fed's up next. pal. not yet ready to appease. Their plans for aggressive rate hikes the market clearly sees. And as for the bear market tumble, we ask, when will it ease? Well, the good news this morning. speech is currently on track for a higher open. This after five straight losses for the S&P 500 that pushed the benchmark index firmly into bear market territory, now some 21% below recent highs. And investors also bracing for an afternoon of frenzied Fed action to the US central bank set to deliver a three quarters of a percentage point rate hike it may also prepare markets for a similar move next month. But of course, rate hikes have consequences. The ECB dealing with market reaction to its hawkish policy pivot last week, announcing at an emergency meeting today as we've discussed that it's working on a quote instrument to address rising bond yields brought on by its decision to begin tightening policy. Much to discuss. I'm pleased to say Rusha Sharma, chairman of the Rockefeller International and author of the 10 Rules of Successful Nations, joins us now. Rusha, always great to have you on the show. Let's talk about the Federal Reserve first. If you look at what the Fed whispered, as it's known, to the market earlier this week, the message was, look, we, we clearly have to do more. Three quarters of a percentage point rise expected today. But the market's priced a couple more virtually, over the next few months, the messaging today from the Fed is going to be vital to either approve of what it sees or perhaps push back in some way. What are you expecting?
5: Yeah, I think, Julia, as you said, that the Fed is so far behind the curve here, which is that um, if you look at past tightening cycles, we have never had so much tightening uh, anticipated and priced this far forward, right, which is that the Fed funds rate today is still very low. They're pricing in the rate to virtually triple over the next year, year and a half or so. So that is a very unusual development. So it just tells you that how far behind the Fed is. So no matter what the Fed does today, it's going to be very difficult uh, for the Fed to be uh, in control here or send the message that it is ahead of the game. So that's how far behind the Fed has left itself. And that's a real problem. Now, the good news is this, in a way, that what's also very unusual about this tightening cycle is that there seems to be a lot of political consensus. In the past, if you recall, when we had tightening cycles, a lot of politicians would bicker about it. The last time Fed raised rates by 75 basis points uh, was in 1994. And there were a lot of politicians who were very upset about it, This time, because they all recognize that inflation is such a big threat, uh, even to their own approval ratings, that even on the Democrat side, who have in the past been big uh, supporters of easy money and low interest rates, even there, the opposition to low interest rates seems to have disappeared. And they're all lining up, um, uh, accepting the fact that the Fed's got a lot to do here to get inflation back under control.
0: You could argue that they've got nothing to lose either because they're being blamed in many respects for the higher prices. And if the central bank steps in and makes things more painful in terms of higher interest rates, higher credit cards, more expensive loans, then that's the central bank's fault, not the government's fault. So there's perhaps invested interest in here, too. I guess the big question is how much is enough? And what's worse for consumers, the pain of higher prices or the risk, perhaps, that to your point about them being so far behind where they need to be and having to accelerate and do this so quickly that the risk of creating a recession is is also that much higher?
5: Well, yes, but I think that currently the uh, choice is very clear, which is the fact that the economy uh, has been relatively resilient. Yes, there are some indicators which are turning down. But the economy has been relatively resilient uh, and interest rates are still way too low in terms of compared to the inflation rate. So currently, the Fed has no choice but to keep embarking on this. Uh, And so many excesses have been built up in this bull market, you know, which really dates back to 2009. We had that uh, sharp uh, but very short-lived decline during the pandemic. Uh, But this is a bull market. And an economic expansion that dates back, for all practical purposes, to 2009. So it's really been a very long cycle of nearly 13 years, with just a minor interruption in the middle, uh, at least from a market standpoint. So there are so many excesses out there uh, that they needed uh, to be weeded out, and so that's all part of the process. That's what a bear market does, and even recessions, you know, like as ugly as they may sound, but Why do we have recessions? Uh, The U.S. has had a dozen recessions uh, in its post-World War II history uh, because they act as a sort of cleansing mechanism uh, when the excesses get built up to clean out a lot of the excesses, whether it's got to do with inflation or excessive uh, wealth creation based on paper money, all those kinds of things get cleaned out and then you get a new cycle that begins. So yeah, a recession is painful, but it's a normal part of a business cycle and not something that we should fear as to be avoided at any cost, particularly when the trade off is that we will get rid of some of these excesses that got built up due to very easy money policies of the last decade or so.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We digress and take me back to my economics degree, where I think one of the first questions I asked is, why do we have to do boom-boss? Does it not suggest that policy is just inefficient, that we're allowed to go too far one way and then we push ourselves back in the other direction? Um, But that's a whole other conversation, Roushia, because our conversation back in January, you called it the everything bubble, to your point about excesses. Um, And we'll come back to some of the popping of bublets, which you also predicted and, and now we've seen. But you also say that for financial markets, we're in the first act. And then there's a period of intermission and stabilization. And then the the next act is triggered by central bank moves like the Federal Reserve and and, and what we see. And actually, the next act could be equally uncomfortable, if not more. Just describe intermission into next act and what that's going to look like for financial markets.
5: Yeah, so I looked at the pattern of financial markets uh, over the last century or so. And it showed the following pattern, which is that Uh, you typically get the first leg down when the Fed begins its tightening cycle and that first leg down tends to be 15 to 20 percent. And then after that, we typically get some sort of a pause which lasts for a few weeks, sometimes even up to three to four months. And then we get a second leg down, which is driven normally by uh, a recession or an earnings uh, slowdown. So what we've seen so far is the first leg down which has been driven entirely by the Fed's action with no revision at all to the earnings growth of the economy. Uh, You know, that people still expect the economy and earnings to hold up. And when the tightening begins to bite, we get the second leg down when even the earnings uh, fall off uh, quite sharply. And the end of a bear market comes when the Fed typically signals that it's done, that it's tightening cycle is over, it's now willing to uh, call it a day and even possibly move to an easing cycle. So um, that's what is the template that uh, I have described in my writings uh, uh, of late. So there are two indications we should be looking at to know when this bear market comes to an end. One, when the Fed declares that it is close to being done with its tightening cycle. And two, if you just look at the historical parallels It's the magnitude of the decline. The average bear market in the U.S. over the last century has been about uh, 35 percent or so in terms of the decline from peak to trough, which means the S&P 500 as the benchmark being closer to about 3,000 to 3,200 or so. Now, these are just broad averages, but these are the two broad indications that I would look at to suggest that the bear market is coming to an end. And it doesn't seem as if the Fed is anywhere close to being done uh, for the reasons we discussed at the top of your show. And secondly, also the magnitude of the decline so far, as I said, is about half of what we have normally seen, a little over half now after the action of the last week. Uh, But, and this tends to play itself out over a 15 month time horizon or so. And we are just, you can say in the first six months of it. So it seems like we have a while to go. The only silver lining here is, based on averages, now we um, maybe in the second half of this, uh, and so soon enough there will be an opportunity uh, to get back in the market. And here I'll make one very important point, which is that um, a new bull market will eventually begin, but the leadership will change. What led the last bull market was technology, the fangs, those kind of stocks. Every bull market history teaches us that when a new bull market begins, the leadership changes, the old leadership dies. So I'm not going to be putting any capital to work in the FANG stocks or any of the big cap tech stocks or even the tech sector in general. I'll be very wary of it uh, because once a bear market comes in, that leadership gets crushed and doesn't return for at least a decade or so.
0: Oh, I have about a minute left. I have a million more questions to ask you very quickly. Bob Lett crypto. You said to me last time over a 12 month horizon, when these things pop, the average price drop tends to be around 70 percent from the peak over a two year horizon. That was our discussion in January. That argues that crypto still has more downside. Is that your view? And you have about a minute. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. look, as I said, as
5: far as publics are concerned, you know, these are good ideas gone too far. Uh, so in, in 2020, I was bullish on uh, crypto and Bitcoin. And then I felt that it had gone uh, way too far, and I coined uh, this uh, framework of bubblets, and so I think that crypto you know, like uh, is close to being done. It's now down nearly 70% from its peak, so most bubblets are close to being deflated. Uh, but as I said, that it takes typically a two-year process. So uh, I'd say from now, it's more going to be like a time rather than a price decline. And uh, so for the next year or so, it will be a difficult environment for these bubblets uh, including crypto, but in price damage terms, I'd say that, you know, somewhere close to 10,000, uh, this could be done. Uh, now, of course that's a very painful decline. It's a full round trip, but that's how bubblets are. I mean, and that's how bubbles are in the past. That's what the NASDAQ did back in, uh, 2000, 2001 as well on a peak to trough basis. So yeah, we're close to being done on the bubblets, but we still have some time and possibly some more price decline to go. Yeah, I uh, guess yesterday said to us winter's
0: coming and it's going to be an 18-month period now where um, not a lot happens, to your point, point, that fits exactly with your time horizon. Rishi, great to chat to you. As always, Rishi Sharma, chairman of Rockefeller International and author of 10 Rules of Successful Nations. We'll speak again soon, sir. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, rising prices aren't stopping consumers from putting on a brave face. We've got a beautiful face. L'Oreal says its profits still have a healthy glow. The CEO up next. Welcome back to First Move and truly a central bank bonanza this Wednesday as we await Fed Chair Powell's policy power moves later today. And digest the ECB's promise to use power tools of its own to deal with rising sovereign bond yields. In the meantime, US stocks are higher in early trade. Here is the picture. That's a nice bounce. The tech heavy Nasdaq rising for a second straight session ahead of the Federal Reserve's decision. A three-quarters of a percent rate hike already baked into the markets here. But remember, this is a day when the Fed members project how far rates may have to rise in future. To contain inflation so brace for more surprises to come in the meantime president biden under intense political pressure to tame prices and ease record high gas prices in particular biden writing to the major u.s oil companies today like exxon and chevron demanding that refineries produce more to help ease the price shock hitting consumers biden blasting what he calls historically high refinery profit margins calling them not acceptable And with inflation casting a shadow over so many sectors of the economy, international beauty giant L'Oreal is shrugging off the fear and carefully applying a brave face. We're all asking, though, what's going on? Beneath the surface, the world's number one cosmetics group has 36 brands, 88,000 employees and reported growth of 16% in a year, way outpacing the rest of the beauty market. But what about the bottom line here? Offering a glimpse into the future of our faces and our bodies, L'Oreal has a number of new innovations to help us look and smell our best. And Nicholas... Aronimous is L'Oreal CEO and he joins us now. Nicholas, fantastic to have you on the show and I can hear how noisy it is behind you so um, bear with us please. Um, Firstly I just want to get your global sense. You have an enormous global business and there is a lot going on in the world that's concerning and challenging. How worried are you?
6: Well, you know, Julia, first of all, very happy to welcome you here from VivaTech, where we are showing uh, how we're becoming a beauty tech leader. But just to answer your question on the state of the world, it's very clear that it has become much more complex to navigate. The world is more VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous than ever. But, you know, at L'Oréal, we remain pretty upbeat because we do not see any slowdown in consumption of the beauty category. And very clearly, we continue to outpace that market. And I will be more than happy to elaborate about the reasons behind these two facts.
0: Elaborate, (laughs) please. Yeah, well, you know, first
6: of all, I think uh, the beauty category has always been proven to be very resilient in types of economic expansion as much as in time of trouble, because it is a category of indulgence where people, when they are facing tough times, go back to, have some good moments. And I must say that if you add this to the fact that people have been locked down and deprived of social life for over two years, we are now in a moment of true carpe diem. And I think we can say that carpe diem trumps inflation all around the world. We see no slowing down or trading down on beauty products. And on the contrary, some of the uh, most social categories, such as fragrance or lipstick, are actually exploding right now. And of course, as the worldwide leader of this industry, making sure that uh, we offer products at the right price points to every type of consumers, from our mass market brands to our very premium luxury brands, we manage to cater to the needs of all consumers around the world and continue to win market share.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it, to your point, because I look at some of your competitors, both at the in the higher margin products and more of the middle range and their cutting forecasts, they're citing supply chain pressures, pricing pressures. Um, So it's quite fascinating to me that, that you're managing somehow to avoid some of these challenges. To your point about consumers wanting to get back out there to live, to look good and to take care of themselves, even if prices rise, how much do prices have to rise? just based on your experience before consumers do start to make choices. Like, how much more room have you got?
6: Well, you know, first of all, I have to say we are facing the same challenges as our competitors, but we are managing uh, through them. And uh, as far as price uh, are, are concerned, uh, we are uh, you know, pricing price increases on, 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 on most of our brands or adapting our promotional strategy and so far we haven't seen absolutely any uh, slowdown of our business. If I look at our first quarter results, we, uh, we grew as you know by uh, 13.5%. One third of this was volume and thirds was value which showed that you can valorize of course to a certain extent and continue to grow in volume and our whole strategy is to have a a wide pyramid of price levels, starting from our mass market divisions to our luxury brands. And we have creams that start at eight euros or eight dollars and creams that sell at 400 euros. And so there's a good product for everyone. But in the end, what really matters is that this is an offer-driven market. And if we come up with innovations, and we launch lots of innovations every quarter, every year, these innovations are tempting enough for consumers For them to be willing to pay the price and that's part of the recipe behind the dynamism of the market and the capacity of l'oreal to overperform that market
0: you know i'm so excited to talk about some of your innovations and what you're presenting there but i have one more question because i think china today again topical with the fall that we saw in their retail sales lockdowns challenges nicholas how are you achieving the growth and the sustained growth that you've seen, particularly over the last two years, there. And, and what challenges are you facing there and, and, and how are you getting around them? Does it come down to digital?
6: Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, you know, we've been in China for a very long time. Uh, our brands are loved by Chinese consumers and the rising middle classes of China love L'Oreal Paris, number one brand in China, love Lancôme, number one luxury brand in China. And clearly, we've developed a pretty uh, strong uh, uh, e-commerce know-how in China with uh, partnerships with the T-Mold and the JDs and our teams there. So we have both enjoyed a a great growth in uh, brick and mortar as well as in e-commerce. And clearly, in the recent periods when most of the stores were closed, of course, particularly in Shanghai, we could continue to engage our consumers online. And uh, April was a very tough month for everybody, but if I look at our May results in sellouts, the market in e-commerce went back to growth, uh, whereas the brick and mortar remained negative. But when the market was around plus 5% in May uh, in e-commerce, we were at plus 30%. Because we know how to tempt our consumers, engage them with nice offers, not promotions with just great new products. And that's, I guess, what we're going to be uh, doing in, uh, in June, where there's a big event, it's called 618, which is a big uh, beauty moment for Chinese consumers. And the early days of that uh, festival are very promising. So we are confident in the short term, but more importantly, China is a long-term growth engine, because. The, the, the middle classes are going to increase by 300 million people between now and 2030 because the Chinese want and love beauty and because L'Oreal is their favorite brand there. So I guess uh, you can count on uh, L'Oreal and China to continue to deliver growth.
0: Yeah, fascinating as well, the power of your brand, even given the backdrop and some of the challenges between China and the United States on a political level. That's a whole other conversation that we will come back to. I hope you'll come back and talk to me about. We have to talk about tech. And I could talk about all sorts of things, your digital profile, NFTs, because I know you're involved in that as well and engaging in in Web3 operations. But actually, it's the sensation that did catch my attention, this in-store experience for measuring a consumer's reaction to sense. Talk us through this, because this is fascinating to me, too. Yeah,
6: well, it's very fascinating. You know, here at Vivetech we are trying to present what we think the future of beauty is going to be and we are here to write the future of beauty as leaders of this category and amongst the many uh, things we're presenting here on Innovations there is this famous Scent Station which was developed with a, a startup called Emotive and the whole idea was to help consumers navigate in the thousands of fragrances that are available and find the one that's right for them in a personalized way rather than the one that the Beauty Advisors wants to sell and that's why we developed this tool which is based on a questionnaire and a measurement with a helmet that measures consumers' emotions when they smell different accords. And we see their emotions, whether it's uh, pleasure, whether it's energy, whether it's stress on the negative side. And thanks to this measurement, after smelling like six different accords, if I'm correct, they will get a recommendation of what is the fragrance that makes them feel the best. And uh, we've uh, tested it here, but more importantly, in, uh, in Dubai Mall a couple of uh, weeks ago. And we had uh, a 96% accuracy in terms wow. of recommendations. So consumers <laughs> left with a fragrance that they knew they would live well with. And that's, uh, you know, when you make a consumers happy, that's the recipe of success and of ongoing success. So I'm very, very excited about this project.
0: That's, I mean, and that's just one of the innovations, actually, that you're looking at. Although I'd rather have 10 people around me with those helmets on and to measure how I smell. It's not just about me, it's how it's presented to everybody else, but I'm sure you're working on it. Um, Very quickly, because we have around a minute, the shower head that helps you wash your hair, rinse your hair, but uses 61% less water. Just one minute, the selling point of this, I mean, it speaks for itself, but this is great innovation too.
6: Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very important innovation. You know, as you know, we are the worldwide leaders of the professional industry. And in hair salons, even before talking about uh, people's homes, in hair salons, you're using thousands of liters of water to, to rinse shampoos or hair colors. And we uh, found and worked with this great uh, 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 startup called Giosa which designed this uh, shower head that actually reduces the use of water by, by reducing by 10 times, 10x, the size of water droplets that allows you to, uh, to rinse whatever you need to rinse uh, using 60% less water, and of course having to heat up 60% less water. So it's a major contribution to our L'Oreal for, t- for the future uh, sustainability trajectory, and we are just beginning to roll it out. We've put it in 4,500 salons, planning to extend it to 100,000, and hopefully, uh, and I know they're working on it right now maybe bring it to people's homes because uh, if we can also bring that to people's home and maintain the pleasure of a shower but the reduction of water consumption that will be again a major contribution to a, to a better planet and to creating beauty that moves the world
0: Yeah, and far less water heated to your point too this is an energy consequence there as well Nicholas, fantastic to chat to you today thank you so much and um, please come back soon and enjoy the event I know you're going to have fun there great to chat to you the CEO of L'Oreal, there. Thank you very much. So thank you. To you Great to chat. Bye. Welcome back to First Move. And how about this for some crypto consequences? El Salvador embraced Bitcoin like no other country, even going as far as adopting it as legal tender. And the government has amassed more than 2,300 Bitcoins since September of last year, At one point worth $103 million. That investment, of course, now worth significantly less as prices plunge. But the country's finance minister says the fiscal risk is, quote, extremely minimal. Patrick Ottman joins us now. Patrick, unrepentant, I think, is the way we could describe the president. I I saw he tweeted, you're telling me we should buy more Bitcoin. Uh, I suppose it's called averaging in, I believe, uh, in market terms. Um, what are the financial consequences, Patrick? They were, how material are they?
4: You know, it was just about uh, a year ago, Julia, you and I were talking about yes. this uh, bold bet by El Salvador's president, uh, Nayib Bukele, on Bitcoin, and uh, it's impossible to look at it any other way that this was a very bad bet because not only uh, was it purchasing all the Bitcoin, it was essentially rebranding his country as a Bitcoin country, giving all of his citizens a digital wallet, trying to entice Bitcoin entrepreneurs to come and live in El Salvador, saying they wouldn't have to pay taxes, talking about building this futuristic Bitcoin city. And, and it has not worked out according to plan, whatever uh, El Salvadoran officials want to claim. They've lost a lot of money on this, a lot of prestige, and it continues uh, to look uh, like uh, the situation will get worse and worse, uh, despite uh, Naibu Kelly claiming that uh, they're going to continue to buy the dip uh, as he has uh, over the last uh, several months. Uh, the problem has been uh, they have not bought the dip. The the, the prices continue to fall. And uh, the, so much of their image their economy uh, is tied into Bitcoin right now. So the, even if it's not a, a large a portion of their budget, it's having other impacts in terms of their credit rating, their ability to repay debt. And uh, Naiba Kelly can continue, continue to double down, but unless uh, the price uh, takes a, a, a very different turn here, uh, the situation is not going to improve for him. And uh, it, it is looking more and more uh, like he has bet a lot of this country's future on Bitcoin and is not paid out, at least not yet.
0: Yeah, I mean, the loss is not crystallized until you sell it. Um, however, to your point, that perhaps the credibility here is um, an even bigger loss and the challenge challenges not yet over. Patrick, we're going to talk about this in the next hour. Much to discuss. I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much for that report for now, Thanks. Patrick artman OK, after the break, a K-pop bubble bursts. BTS says they're taking a break, but does that mean they're gone for good? Details next. Welcome back to First Move. Korean boy band BTS saying BRB. Let's be right back. Cause I They came in like dynamite, but now they're taking a break from blowing up the music charts. The supergroup was very careful to call this break a hiatus. They say they want to explore solo projects, and one of them did admit they were going through a, quote, rough patch right now. So what on earth is going on? Paula Hancock joins me from Seoul. This story is huge, and I've seen the fan fallout, which is, I think, best described as devastation. Interesting that the leader, though, said that he felt guilty and afraid to ask for the rest that he needed. So so Paula, what's going on and what has the fallout been?
7: Well, Julia, certainly you can, you can see many fans are bitterly disappointed that they are taking a break, but other fans understand as well. The, uh, the online response has, has really been quite varied. They have a massive following around the world. The fans are known as the army and they are extremely loyal to this group. So this all, all came about uh, at an anniversary dinner, their ninth anniversary, which was uploaded to their YouTube. Uh, channel and they discussed for more than an hour the fact that they were going to take a break from the group but they were going to pursue uh, their solo careers now hybe the management group that uh, uh, that owns uh, bts and that manages bts their shares actually dropped about 25% uh, today after this uh, this news. Clearly a bit of a shock for the markets as well as for uh, the fans themselves. Uh, they are an extremely successful band. In fact, that's a bit of an understatement. They are the first group since the Beatles to have had three number one albums on the Billboard 200 chart, uh, nominated for two Grammy Awards, and the list goes on. Now, one of the things that many of them were saying was that they needed a break, they needed a rest. They felt that uh, being part of the K-pop industry did not give them a chance to mature, although one of them did point out that they are concerned for their fans. Right
3: now, we've lost our direction. And I just want to take some time to think and then return. But that just feels rude to our fans and like I'm letting down their expectations.
7: Worth pointing out, they all have military service coming up as well. By the age of 30, the group
0: is between the age of 24 and
7: 29. Julia?
0: Yeah, not being given, at least yet, the exemption that sports stars, for example, receive. Well, we wish them well on their hiatus. Paula Hancock, great to have you with us. Thank you for that. And finally, on First Move, most of us remember the South Korean series Squid Game as grisly but gripping. Well, the makers aren't done with it yet. They're turning it into a reality TV show with the largest prize in TV history of over four and a half million dollars. Good grief. But don't worry, we promise no one dies in Squid Game, the challenge. And there's more good news. Fans of the original drama are being promised a second series. I think someone needs to call the insurers on that one, to be honest. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at J Chastley CNN. I'll be back right with you in a few moments. Time with Connect the World in just a moment. Stay with us. You're with CNN.
3: When you work, you work next level. When you
5: play, you play next level.
0: A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.